Hi there and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. It's Friday, June 17th, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm the Journal's opinion page editor. With me today are city columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. Provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And once again, our education reporter Janet French back in the house. Hi. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Well, you'd think that with the end of session, all would be quiet on the legislative front. It was not. I guess technically there was no actually legislation coming through, but the legislature, the cabinet ministers, they were all pretty busy people this week. We have a lot of things to talk about, but we wanted to start with something that happened on the weekend that wasn't tied specifically to the legislature, but to party politics. And Graham and Paula, I'm going to turn mostly to you for this one. I wanted to look at the NDP convention and specifically uh, Premier Notley's leadership review. How did all that go? These things can be pretty big deals sometimes. Yeah, it's interesting. She got 97.8%. That's an A+. And I was surprised that 2.2% voted (laughs) against her. Uh, I asked the party what happened, and they said they really think it's because people got confused. that They're voting yes for Notley. In fact, they were voting yes for leadership rate, right? (laughs) Um, Uh, uh, Yeah, back they need remedial math. Exam- yeah. something. Oh, the, the, dis- or, dis- the discovery math at the NDP convention. <laughs> or it's just... Or the some, question wasn't clear. Are just grumpy people in the party. There's always somebody in the party who doesn't think the party's doing enough. Or the leader's not doing people enough. People ran against her, right? Maybe, maybe they voted against Yeah. Maybe it's the coup d'etat, people. <laughs> this is it. The 2% came out to try and defeat her. Anyway, uh, she did really well, of course, uh, in this vote. 97.8% um, supports. 850 delegates, I think, were there. This was a big party for the NDP. You know, they're looking at different um, uh, resolutions, but the real thing here was this, this was the first convention since they won the election, and they're still on a high. Hmm. Uh, even though the NDP isn't doing so well in public opinion polls these days, the party itself is having a huge party. That was last. That, that, that was their big party after winning the election. And, uh, yeah, we were focused on the leadership review. We knew she would do well, of course. Like she was the reason, really, they won the election. So getting 98% was not... Maybe it's unprecedented in Alberta politics for any but any leader. I think Ralph Klein didn't get that high. I was wondering rating. about that. I couldn't he got remember. The, he got in the 90s, but she got 98%, which means that the party is still in love with her. Is there any danger, though, that by being so successful this time that any other, you know, in future years, future leadership reviews, do they do it every do we, how often do they do their reviews? They have a constitution. It was af- after the election. The various parties have like ones every three years, or after an election, they'll have a leadership review it's in, the, in the constitution. Okay. So, so it's, it's not, not every year. Okay, okay. Because I was just wondering, is there any danger that, you know, by doing so well this time, that any future years, you know, the longer you're in government, the more people get a little disgruntled. Does it cause or will it cause her problems down the road? It's pretty hard to live up to that measure. I mean, it's a bit like starting here, you know, you get an A-plus on your first assignment in class, and then anything after that is going to be a disappointment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at this point, she is riding so high with her own party, and the contrast to poor Brian Jean uh, dealing with uh, the little mini outbreaks of civil war in his own party, in his own caucus, is so stark that her, you know, her acclamation as leader almost becomes more telling when you look at brian jean who personally in the latest polling i've seen is personally polling very very well in the wake of the fire and yet it's almost as though the better he does in the polls the greater the impetus from people who want to dethrone him their logic being well hey uh, wild rose is doing well the leadership of the party is more valuable so let's push him out there are these groups alberta can't wait and prosperity alberta who are 
you know, from the outside trying to overthrow him to put in some kind of imaginary conservative wild rose compromise candidate who I don't think exists. Hmm. Uh, there are rumors about, you know, somebody coming from Ottawa. It's coming from Ottawa. Didn't Ryan Jean but, come from Ottawa, kind yeah, of? Well, <laughs> via well, Fort yes, McMurray, via but, Ottawa? Yeah, I mean, you sort of have to wonder if in Ottawa, people are saying, well, Brian Jean took that leadership of the party when nobody wanted it, when the party had been you know, decimated by Daniel Smith's floor crossing. And I think there are maybe now some people in the conservative federal party caucus uh, who are thinking, you know, gosh, we're out of power. We're going to be out of power in Ottawa for a long time. Maybe if I came back to Alberta and took over as the leader of the imaginary combined Wild Rose Conservative Party, then I would have power. This presupposes many facts which are not in evidence. No, all this. So many, many hypotheticals on the Wild Rose, I guess. Yeah. So Brian Jean, Brian Jean is continuing to have a very difficult time corralling his party, which makes Notley's incredible showing at her convention look all the more stellar. Rachel Notley really won that election for them. You can argue that. Like she is so popular, so well liked last year. People looked at her and thought, you know, she's she's not a scary left winger. She's quite reasonable. And people voted for her. They won the election. Brian Jean was not the savior of the Wild Rose. Paula is right. They were in disarray. They had a real problem with that floor crossing. It killed the party in many, many ways. And Brian Jean became leader of the Wild Rose just a few days before the election was called. So the Wild Rose did really well in that election. Now, Brian Jean's a credible leader, absolutely. But I think what happened here is the Wild Rose saved themselves. The movement saved itself. It wasn't Brian Jean being the savior. And the problem for him with that is that the loyalty is not there from his own party. They're thinking, look, the, the movement's bigger than you, Brian. Uh, we're bigger than you. So step, in, step out of line and we'll crush you. And we saw that happen with the Derek Filderbrand crisis, if I can call it that, where it's kind of it was a case of Brian Jean against Filderbrand, and the party rallied behind Derek Filderbrand, not with Brian Jean. And that, to me, undermined um, their leadership of Brian Jean. And we saw something else happen last week, it was interesting, was uh, Danielle Smith wrote a blog yeah. about her experience as leader of the Wild Rose. September 2014, there was four by-elections going on. This interesting poll, uh, a, a demon dialer went out calling people up, saying that Danielle Smith walked in a pride parade where men are, naked men are- Naked men were in front of children. Yes. Is that the kind of leader you want? And people, no, why does it go, no, not, of course not. Danielle Smith said that she thought that was being done anonymously by one of her that other parties. She said she found out later on, no, it wasn't. It was people inside the Wild Rose behind this. Really? To teach her a lesson about marching in pride parades. And that led to this blow up at her convention in November of right. 2014. which I remember. Where, where she was... Yep talking about very proudly about this Wild Rose Party is moving ahead and we embrace the sexual minorities on a speech on Friday and then the Saturday, the weekend, the party voted against protecting the rights of sexual minorities. And that then blew up into the floor crossing because the caucus and the leader were at odds with the actual party. Yeah, hmm. And so this, this piece that uh, Danielle Smith published is really quite astonishing because she comes out and basically throws her support behind Brian Jean and says, see, I told you, I told you this would happen. And uh, it was an interesting, given that there's not particularly a lot of love lost between Daniel Smith and Brian Jean. Hmm. Um, it was a very interesting 
turn of events to see. Of course, uh, Daniel Smith, for people in Edmonton who don't know, is now hosting a talk radio program in Calgary and quite a popular one. She's returned to her roots as a journalist, so it's it's interesting to see her taking a more active role in that political debate this week. Okay, well, we'll move from the hypothetical potential, what might happen down the road with the Wild Rose, to something that last week we talked about is kind of hypothetical as well, a review of Alberta's education curriculum. Janet, you told us that something like this might be coming. I don't know if I expected it quite so soon as Monday, or I guess officially Wednesday. So tell us what happened with with the, the minister, or what, what the minister did actually announce on Wednesday. Well... Uh, last week, so maybe a week and a half ago, when the minister was talking at uh, the Alberta School Boards Association in Red Deer, he actually dropped a lot of little newsy bombs there that had been, you know, percolating underneath. And and one of them was, you can expect to see a really aggressive curriculum review. And he also didn't go into much detail there. So then I kind of prodded him about it on uh, last Friday and said, what do you mean by that? <laughs> And it uh, turns out we found out on Wednesday the detail, which was that um, for the first time ever, they're going to revamp the curriculum simultaneously in English and French, which normally doesn't happen. Normally, it's written in English, and then uh, one of the Francophone School Board chairs told me it can take anywhere from six months to two years to translate all those resources into French. So if you're in French immersion or a Francophone school, you're always a little bit behind. Your curriculum is always a little bit behind, which I did not know. Yeah, I didn't uh, And um, the other weird thing is that normally it's done one subject at, at a time on an approximately 10-year schedule. Right. Uh, and now it'll be arts, math, language arts, science, social studies, and wellness. That means health. Uh, that all, means sex ed. <laughs> that means sex ed and consent. Okay. Uh, all together at once at the same time. And they're doing it kind of in these phases from younger to older uh, they say because obviously the older curriculum it will build on what they know in the earlier years. So K to four is kind of the higher, the faster priority than five to nine, than high school. To me, this is in some ways seemed insane to announce you were going to review <laughs> all of the curriculum, all of this massive curriculum at the same time, because it is a huge undertaking. And we've seen how just one subject like math, changing that curriculum can cause all kinds of problems. I mean, there are all kinds of political minefields people don't expect. I mean, who knew that math curriculum could become a firestorm political issue? I mean, you would think that mathematics was not something amenable to that kind of ideological argument, but you'd be wrong. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of potential pitfalls here. I mean, sex ed and health is, I mean, as we've seen in Ontario, can be a very difficult thing to stick handle. But the social studies curriculum it could be very political too because uh, David Egg and the education minister is talking about incorporating much more about First Nations, Métis, Inuit history in that curriculum. Uh, the current curriculum, I can say, my daughter having graduated from high school year before last, um, is very dated. The social studies curriculum is kind of a very Cold War narrative. It's all about building up to the Russian Revolution and the rise of the Soviet Union, and then it just kind of ends. Um, and so it really needs to be updated for all kinds of 
the world has changed a lot since okay. 2005, which is, I think, the last tinkering they did with the social curriculum. But you create all kinds of potential backlashes. I don't know. Maybe the strategic end game here is that if you make everybody mad all yeah. at the same time, <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there can't be focus on any one of those issues. What was the logic, Janet, in having in doing this all at once as opposed to the more phased approach that we're used to in Alberta? And maybe that's why I reacted the way that I did to thinking, what is going on? Because I'm used to more of this phased approach. The, the answer is horribly jargony. It's called cross-curricular competency. What does that mean? Okay, cross-curricular cross competencies in English means uh, stuff goes together. So basically okay. it means that some themes will be woven throughout multiple subject areas. So maybe if you're talking about a particular topic, you talk about it in a numerical way in math and you analyze it in math and then you go on to social studies and have an anthropomorphological... <laughs> Yes, anthrop anthropomorphological. Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, a human-ish discussion uh, about uh, about it socially, and maybe you there's a science angle, and it's also I think it has a lot to do with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations as well about not just First Nations history and talking about residential schools, but First Nations ways of knowing and holistic knowing and. Uh, I and think what that I means guess in is using that in, in, in infusing it into English classes yeah. and all that sort of thing. What that, I think what that means is also like um, oral traditions rather than just written traditions, oh. uh, and also more lessons that are connected to being outside, being on the land. Hmm. So I, I think what's the reaction from everyone else, Graham? Well, I think lead, this yeah. is this is an example of how a big example of how the NDP government is not backing down at all. They're pushing full steam ahead. They're making changes and big changes. And I think in, in a sense, we're kind of joking about this. I think you're right, Paula. Like, why do a, a few changes here and there and get blow up left and right? Just do the whole thing at once and show you actually are determined to make changes. And they're big changes. And this government is making no apologies for making those big changes. They've got an agenda, and they're pushing it forward. Uh, they won the election. People will say they didn't get a majority of votes, but a lot of governments get majority governments without a majority of votes and they push things through and this government is pushing through a lot of different things and they're not slowing down it's been a year and at some point they're going to stop or slow down and then try and co uh, consolidate their position ahead of the next election but that's three years away to the next election so right they're going to keep on pushing but what's the timeline on this curriculum review so it depends what grade. So for elementary, so that would be early elementary, K through four, they want to have it done by the end of 2018. Uh, and then from there, I mean, the minister... That is, that is fast. <laughs> but in some uh, ways, not so fast, because I was thinking about this. I can explain that. But well, continue. okay. Yeah. So it goes back to rewind to last week when we were talking about inspiring education. And they, they did this... Uh, it, I have a little bit more information on this now. Still looking for some degree of clarity. But the PC's uh, government, under the PC government, the bureaucrats had already started working on curriculum mm. and it was actually farmed out to individual school districts and school divisions um, and then they made what was like curriculum prototypes mm. uh, so a little mini practice curricula and so my understanding is that they're not throwing out that work it was paused under the apprentice government but now they're going to kind of pick that up and build upon it so they're saying no 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 the 30 million dollars you would have heard of before it wasn't a waste of money okay Here's what I was thinking. In some ways, it does seem very fast, knowing how long it does take to review curriculum. But then at the same time, I was thinking, I did the math. And when you tell me that maybe in one of your stories, I think that school, it's not going to start rolling out schools until 2020. Well, for me, I've got one kid in grade six right now. That means that he won't actually get any of this new curriculum by the time he graduates. So he's still going to be learning the same old stuff as Paula's 
uh, yes. daughter. <laughs> Which now that I we hear be, about it, we shall be super old. So now I'm like, then. maybe it's not fast enough. I don't know. What's the reaction been from other political parties who are going to be, I guess, discussing this in the legislature? Because we know that it'll, even though I don't think they have to pass a curriculum in the legislature, I'm sure it'll be a topic of discussion. Well, the PCs put out a news release and obviously they're like, you're wrecking our vision. No, this is not what we planned. Um, you know, but that we've already had Thomas Lukasik say, oops, you know, we didn't implement this. So our bad. Right. Um, and the Wild Rose, actually, I was surprised. I mean, he, uh, Mark Smith has had been a teacher for like 30 years in Drayton Valley and he taught social studies in high school. Um, and so he he was quite um, he wasn't entirely playing politics on this. He was he was kind of, you know, the devil's in the details and exactly how big of a degree of change it is and how much time will teachers have to do the PD and understand it. And I think he just wanted more information. What they're really worried about is standardized testing. And that was something that was conspicuously absent during the announcement is um, this great curriculum and don't worry, it'll match the tests and thanks for coming. Uh, So what is it going to do to provincial exams? What is it going to do to diploma exams? I don't think we have a lot of clarity on that at all right now, but we do have the Alberta Teachers Association as a partner in this development and they do not support the provincial exams. They want... um, more what's like diagnostic testing at the beginning of the year rather than outcome testing where they look at what a student would have learned by the end of the year on a particular day. I mean, certainly the Wild Rose have also raised an issue about, you know, basics. I mean, this plays right to the Wild Rose kind of political base. You know, they want a focus on numeracy and literacy. Uh, And it's interesting because I think David Egan has also, I mean, it was actually under the conservatives that they moved towards the discovery math that was such a political hot potato. And I got the feeling reading between the line in Egan's press release that, that they're signaling that they want those, you know, that mathematical, you know, they want the arithmetic basics to be in place I think they do um and that's something that you know when we were pressing him in the scrums about what about sex ed and what about consent and what about climate change and he'd be like and math and English <laughs> he kept coming back to literacy and numeracy well, so I mean, he, he was a classroom yeah. teacher for years himself really important. you know but you know there are there are the landmines you don't expect I got into a, a bit of a discussion yesterday with the superintendent of the Wild Rose School Division which is in Rocky Mountain House who's been advocating on Twitter to make sure that creationism gets equal time with evolution in the science curriculum so I wasn't on Twitter yesterday I missed yeah, that so okay. uh, you know out there in the wide world there are many 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 things that can really blow up in this government's face but mm-hmm. I, I think as Graham and I are suggesting maybe you just get in the Hummer and you drive the whole thing through the minefield and the Hummer is really big and it doesn't blow up as but, a but I couldn't imagine any NDP are driving a Hummer no well maybe if they make <laughs> a, the if they made a hybrid I mean, one be, be the hybrid goes through the minefield um, and quickly this is going to take six years ultimately so they're looking beyond the next election it's true. Uh, so uh, it's, that's good in a sense that you know government shouldn't always be constrained by the four-year election cycle. They should be thinking long-term, and too often they don't. So this is an NDP government thinking, hey, we'll be around in six years, so we'll be here to, to see the end of it. And I will say I will get to test out the new curriculum with my youngest child, so <laughs> I'll get the best of all of it. I'll be able to report back. There was that. Thank you for that update, Janet. That wasn't the only thing 
you know, kind of big story out of the Alberta legislature this week. Graham, you were covering another event, an announcement with the agriculture minister that kind of popped up on the calendar. Yeah, this was an internal auditor report. This is not a report done by the auditor general. Okay. This is a different department inside government. It does forensic editing, uh, auditing inside Forensic editing. I need a forensic editor. (laughs) This is an internal auditor who does forensic auditing inside the government. So the auditor general does annual reviews, how things are going to go. The internal auditor um, reports to the finance department, the treasury uh, minister, uh, finance minister, as to what's actually happening inside uh, the government, more like a day-to-day, are we spending money properly, and is there anything going on that's wrong? So, pardon me, so a report came out. Normally, and normally these internal auditing reports are not made public. This was made public on Monday. Why? As Very a, public. It was a report, yes, a news conference with the Ag Minister. This is the Agriculture Financial Services Corporation. This is a corporation, Crown Corporation, and it gives out small business loans to farmers up to $5 million. It runs uh, crop insurance for farmers. So if there, when there's a disaster, that's when I've heard them yeah. before, and, when and there's an agricultural here, we're talking disaster. Here, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars go through this corporation every year. It's, it's a big deal, 600 employees. But what happened is yeah. um, on Monday, the government announced it had dismissed the entire board of directors and suspended with pay three of the senior officials in there. Because the audit, it was sparked by an um, anonymous tip, mm-hmm. had discovered uh, all kinds of misspending of taxpayers' money, public money, by this by the senior officials. Uh, they were taking trips they shouldn't have been taking overseas. Three hundred and forty-two thousand dollars in trips were unnecessary. They figured between two thousand and eleven to two thousand fifteen. And so they're, they're also they're finding they're taking limo um, rides. Lots of limo rides Lots. from like Lacombe to Edmonton limo rides. Now, there can be good reasons to take a limo if you're transporting large groups of yeah, people. Sometimes the math makes people. better and, sense. And also this, because they were dealing, this, this Crown Corporation deals with reinsurers mm-hmm. uh, in the brokerage business. They were accepting gifts from brokers that they were dealing with. So they're, they're giving business to a broker who's giving them gifts. Mm. Like nice golf gifts. games, yeah, golf games. Uh, also, th- this Crown Corporation spent like nineteen thousand dollars on um, tickets to the Oilers, things like that. And and sing- sole source contracts that should have been put out to tender, which is perhaps even a bigger problem. This is all according yeah. to the internal audit. Uh, all of yes. this information, right, is coming from that. So that's okay. Yeah. Um, Normally, this would be a big problem for the government. So in the past, when it was a progressive conservative government, I think some the opposition would have used something like this to say, oh, look at the government not paying attention. Is that playing the same way for the NDP? No. I mean, the Wild Rose was very... It put out a very interesting press release basically said yay to the NDP for firing this board of directors because, of course, this is... I mean, the NDP still has the luxury of being able to say not on our watch you know we inherited all of these boards uh you know the abcs they call them uh all of the boards the agencies the boards and commissions which they are uh giving the the a real comb through to see which ones are redundant which ones don't actually provide value for money Mm. so in the for i think for the next for the next year i think the ndp will still be indemnified but it's interesting, if you look at the comments 
below uh, Emma Graney's story on our website, there are people who are blaming the NDP. The NDP is like, you know, and other commenters are saying, no, 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 these are all conservative appointees. This is a problem that the NDP inherited and th the NDP is now fixing. Um, I think the NDP can work that narrative for about another 12 months, and then people are going to start to wonder, you know, why they aren't doing it faster. But, you know, under the old government, uh, the government was very fond of setting up agencies, boards, and commissions, spinning them off from government departments, staffing them with friends of the government. Uh, it was a very nice symbiotic It's not unique to the PCs, I should say. It is not unique to the PCs, but it'll be interesting to see if the NDP have the political will, among all the other things they're doing, to really cut back on those agencies, boards, and commissions to bring more of that work in-house to government where it's more um, accountable to voters because one suspects that this is a cultural problem, that this is not particular to the individuals who are on this board or on this executive. So but you're so you're buying the agriculture minister's line because he used that. He used a phrase like that, didn't he, Graham? He and said you this did, was a culture of entitlement. And you didn't necessarily agree to well, that. The thing is, he said a culture of entitlement uh, linking back to the previous government, the previous administration, because yeah. that's the word he used. And it's okay, fine, because people on, Paul is right, you get people on that board, uh, one's a former PCMLA, uh, the president, one of the people who had been suspended was uh, former EA to the Minister of Agriculture back on <laughs> the day of, I guess, Getty and Klein, and who's moved on and is now running this um, uh, corporation. So there are de definitely direct links to the PCs. And you had O'Neill Carley, or the minister, saying this is a, an example of the culture of entitlement under the former government. I said, fine. So you're saying this is widespread. And he couldn't say that. Um, so he said, well, this is just a one-off in this Crown Corporation. But of course, it does speak to this idea that the NDP certainly wants to paint the PCs mm. as the old cronies uh, system. Redford, of course, that term was used regarding her culture of entitlement. When yeah, she and an AG's report, yeah. Right, but I think that uh, they're going to be careful uh, how far they push this without hard evidence. But it is interesting, they actually released this report. As I say, normally we don't see the internal auditor's reports. They're, they're for government's use to try and make things better because very often they don't find anything. It's just really internal bureaucracy things. This is something they brought out saying it's in the public interest. Not but only I, that, they've turned it over to the RCMP uh, for possible exactly. criminal investigation. So, which mm -hmm. is why they, weren't, they didn't actually name anybody. We could right. do connect the dots ourselves in the media. Um, but Paula's right. That it's gone off to the, the RCMP for criminal investigations. And this, though, it's interesting. There's still that political bent where the NDP yes. is very happy to use this as a club against the PCs to say, look how bad things were. Here's one example of just how bad things got out of the PCs. We'll do things differently. The question is, will they do things differently? And will things improve under the NDP? Well, thanks, guys. We'll wrap up the broader discussion there because it sounds like some repair work in the journal may soon make our uh, newsroom studio unusable. <laughs> we'll uh, move to good stuff from the gallery. That's our weekly segment where we suggest a good uh, political read, watch, or listen. Maybe not so good in my case this week. But Janet, we'll start with you. I know you won't disappoint. This is, I don't know if it's so political, but That's it's okay. uh, its health related, which Ooh. is always political. Absolutely. Uh, so um, I don't know if this is a few days old, but Jen Gerson wrote uh, just a fantastic um, feature about the Stefan family of Southern Alberta. Uh, right. And so Ezekiel Stefan was that toddler 
who had died and the parents were convicted of failing to provide the necessities of life, I believe. And she goes back through all the family's history talking about Ezekiel's grandfather and grandmother and uh, the grandmother's mental illness and the grandfather, how he founded this company that uh, so pushed, yeah, pushed natural health products and how that mm. sort of framed what we ended up seeing in court over the past couple of months. Play. It's just, it's just a, a good read. very well put together very, read. Very solid piece of reporting. Okay, well, I'll add the link to that. That was a very good piece. Good recommendation. Paula, what would you like to... I would like to recommend a really remarkably powerful essay from The Spectator in Great Britain uh, called Day of Infamy, which was written in response to the murder this week of Liberal MP Joe Cox, um, who was assassinated outside her constituency office. There are allegations from some witnesses, not all, that the man accused of stabbing and shooting her yelled Britain first, uh, which is the name of a very right-wing party in Great Britain that opposes uh, Britain's cooperation in the Eurozone and, uh, and wants, uh, you know, they're, they're a pro-Brexit group. Um, uh, Joe Cox had been extremely active and extremely vocal in defending uh, Britain's participation in the EU. So uh, it's a really great essay that talks about the fact that even though the person who killed her may have been, you know, a random uh, lone gunman, that when you have a political culture that is filled with incendiary rhetoric, um, you know, inciting rage and inciting violence, that you oughtn't to be surprised when sometimes it happens. And I think it's very applicable, not just to the fate of this poor woman, but to the whole political discourse that we're having in North America, whether it's here or in the United States with Donald Trump, there are consequences to rhetoric and the impact that it's going to have on individual citizens. Speaking of Donald Trump, my recommendation is pretty simple and a little childish, but uh, I've been taking a, a one class at the University of Alberta about linguistics, and uh, one of the students showed us all this website called trumplings.com, and it simply is a bunch of dumplings with Donald Trump's face on them. It's quite a disturbing image. You can hit <laughs> add another trumpling, and another one falls from the sky, and you have some odd-looking Donald Trump blinking at you in the form of a dumpling. My dim sum may never be the same. And we had an interesting <laughs> discussion in class about how you form the word trumpling, like the the processes that go into forming that word, but I won't bore you with those details. Graham, please redeem me. <laughs> Speaking of Donald Trump, um, mine is on a article um, this month's edition of The Atlantic. It's a psychologist analyzes Donald Trump, and it's the mind of Donald Trump. A psychologist investigates how Trump's extraordinary personality might shape his possible presidency. I won't give you the punchline. I think you can kind of know where it's headed. But it's really interesting. It's, it's a very, it's well written. It's not a joke. It's actually looking at it very seriously into his mindset and the kind of person that he is and the kind of president he would likely make. And it's very disturbing. On that note, we will wrap up. Thank you very much, Janet, Paula, and Graham, for joining me this week in the Press Gallery. You can hear previous episodes of the podcast at edmontonjournal.com or through the Journal SoundCloud feed. You can also find the show on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. If you subscribe, the Press Gallery will just be there for you when you refresh your podcast appy thing on your phone or computer. Um, <laughs> the appy thing, it goes down to the Trump lens. That's, that's right, exactly. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week in the Press Gallery.